to Colossians chapter number three. Colossians chapter number three. <clears throat> My text for tonight is only going to be, actually this morning is only going to be one verse, but we are going to cover most of the verses of the first 16 uh, verses of the chapter just to kind of bring us up to the context leading into it. But let's go ahead and read verse number 16, Colossians 3, 16. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let's go and open up in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to dwell on your word, to have it penetrate our hearts and, and change our lives and produce worship within our hearts. And, and I pray that you will be glorified in this message and help the kids as they're over in Children's Church to, to learn a spiritual lesson as well. And we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So since I'm just taking one, t- one verse from this chapter to preach on, I'm going to kind of go back through the context leading into it, but the reason I chose this text is because it is one of our one another passages. Yes, I don't have my microphone on. Can you guys still hear me? No. Okay, so <laughs> it is one of our one another passages, right? R- verse number 16 says, teaching and admonishing one another, and I don't want us to lose sight of that while I deal, work my way through the text. We are talking about what our responsibilities are one to another as believers within the body of Christ and within our local churches. What do I owe my other brothers and sisters in Christ in the way that I relate to them? And these one another passages deal with that concept. In this case, it's teaching and admonishing one another. But let's go ahead and start in verse number five just to get our context here. The the immediate context for our verse starts in verse five where it talks about, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. For for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And so the, the first initial command that Paul is dealing with in Colossians is that we are to mortify our members. The word mortify means to put to death. You think of a mortician, right? Or in Adam's family, the Morticia, who looks like a mortician and kills everything, okay? But you think of somebody who puts things to death, right? Mortify, okay? So we are to put to death our members. But what are our members? Are our members like your, your feet, your hands? Is that what you're supposed to cut off? You're supposed to kill them? So like if Tim struggles, he, he can't help going to the bar on Friday night. He's supposed to chop his leg off so he, he doesn't go to the bar on Friday. Is that, is that what Paul is teaching? Is that really even what Jesus was talking about in, in other passages? No, that's not the idea here. In fact, Paul defines what the members are in this same verse. He says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Here's the, here's the definition. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affections, evil, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. So that, that's our list. The things that we are to mortify within ourselves and in this process of being, of living out the Christian life, we have to kill some things in our lives. We have to put them to death. And I'm not going to dwell on the list as much here, 
But I do want to point out the first thing on that list. It says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication. We'll just talk about this as an illustration for this concept here. Fornication, um, what is fornication? Fornication is any sexual sin outside of marriage, right? And our culture is filled with fornication, with all kinds of fornication. People don't get married. They, they live together. Um, you have pornography is, is involved in this list. You have um, all kinds of movie shows that blatantly, technically they're pornography too. They just call it entertainment, right? Okay, and, and they excuse it by calling it entertainment. But any of those things is a sexual sin. It, it falls under this category of fornication in our lives. And as Christians, these are things that are not supposed to be named among us. They're not supposed to be characteristic of our lives. And we are to mortify them, to put them to death. Colossians 3 verse 1 said, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And the idea here is that we are risen with Christ. We have died with Christ in his death. We are risen with him to new life. So we are risen with him and we are to put to death the things that are not supposed to be in the life of a Christian, okay? And Christians are not supposed to be living with somebody outside of marriage and having sex with them or living in pornography or living in these gross sins. That's not the way a Christian should live their lives, but our society is filled with it. Colossians 3 verse 9 says, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man. We have put off. He has been killed. He has already been put off, right? We need to live that way according to the truth that we are dead to the old man, those old deeds with his deeds. And that, so it says that when we became a Christian, we have put off the old man and we should be done with these things. But now we should put on the new man, okay? That's, that's ultimately the context that we're dealing with in this text. In verse number 10, it says, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. As a Christian, the things that characterized our sinful lifestyles before we became Christians have passed away. They've been crucified with that old man. But we need to live that way. And that's, that's ultimately the, the point of verse 10 here is, we have put on the new man. We have been resurrected. But notice here, it says right after that, it says, and, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Are we perfect? Are we without sin? Are we never going to sin ever again? No, we're, we're not. We're, we're going to continually struggle with sin throughout our mortal existence. But we, but we need to live according to the nature of the new man, and it says it is renewed. It is being renewed, continually being renewed. So this is a process that we are to be involved in in becoming a perfect and a mature Christian. <clears throat> so you aren't, now, you aren't perfect now, but we should be changing. We should be being renewed, and we should be made more like the new man that God has made us to be. Now, to tie this into our text verse here, to do that, we have to put to death the old man and put on the new man, okay? But we, and part of that process is verse number 16. Part of the process of being renewed in, as, in the new man is verse 16, which says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we're going to take 
phrase by phrase, just that, that verse right there and dwell on it for a minute and just kind of meditate how that applies to our lives. So the first part here is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ. So what is the word of Christ? The word of Christ could be the word about Christ or it could be the word that comes from Christ. And to be honest, both answers are true. So when we approach this verse, it's helpful to keep in mind some basic thoughts about uh, from the scripture. First of all, Jesus is the word of God. John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in John 1 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay? And so the, the idea here is that Jesus is the word. Now, to make this clear, Jesus is not the Bible, okay? That we are not saying Jesus is the Bible, but Jesus is the word. And the Bible is the message that comes from and speaks about Jesus. In Hebrews 1 verse 12 says that God had spoken in the past by the prophets, but it says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Okay? But the Bible itself, the scriptures, is also called the Word. In fact, a, a lot of times when, when it talks about the Bible, it uses that word scripture, which literally means the writings of the Bible. The Bible comes from God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So all scripture is given by God. It comes from God and is the word of God. And then the scriptures, they also speak about Christ. And we think about the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus, right? And they were talking about Jesus Christ and how he'd been crucified. And then the stories about the women went to the tomb and he wasn't there. And Jesus meets them on the road. And it says in, verse, in Luke 24, verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the scriptures are the words of God about the word of God and coming from God, ultimately. So when we talk about the word of Christ, we are talking about these scriptures that reveal Jesus Christ to us. And we are to let these scriptures, the word of Christ, they are to dwell in us. So our next point is going to be talking about dwelling. This is where I'm going to spend most of, most of my discussion today on the topic of dwelling. We are to let the word of Christ dwell in us. When you think of that word let, has the idea of more of permission, right? So if my kids want to go swimming in the pool, what do they do? They go to mom and they ask permission and they said, can we go swim in the pool? And then mother will let them do it, right? The word of Christ, if it's to dwell in our hearts, it has to be allowed the opportunity to do that. We have to give it the opportunity. We have to let the word of Christ dwell in, in us richly. This isn't something that just happens naturally. So like you fell asleep with your Bible on your head and uh, in the morning you just woke up and boom, now you're an exegetical genius. You know everything that's in the Bible, right? Because it just seeped into your head overnight. That's not how it works, okay? But we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Now I've got probably five points on dwelling and I stole them from Charles Spurgeon. So I'm just gonna put that out there so you don't think I'm a genius, okay? Charles Spurgeon's the genius, not me. Okay, but what does it mean to dwell? Okay, what, what, is it, what does it mean to dwell? First of all, in order for something to dwell in, 
you have to enter into it, right? You think of dwelling in a house. I, ha I have a house, and it has a front door. In order for me to dwell in it, I have to have actually entered into the house, right? So the word of God has to enter into our lives for it to do what it is intended to do. Just to quote Spurgeon, he said, if you read a portion of scripture every day, I commend you for doing so. If you make a practice of reading through the Bible in a stated period, I commend you still more. Some, I know, read the Bible through every year in due course. This is well, but all this may be done, and yet the word of Christ may never have entered into the reader. It's, it's the same idea. You can have this external influence of the word where you're reading it, but it doesn't penetrate into your heart. And so in order for something to dwell, it has to enter into your heart. This is where meditation comes in. This is where studying comes in. This is where uh, memorizing scripture comes into play because we are allowing it the opportunity to enter into our hearts. But then it's not, it's not even just enough to know the words of scripture, but we also must apply the words of scripture for it to enter into our lives. So scripture, in order to dwell, has to have first of all entered into our lives. So for you to truly dwell in you must comprehend the meaning of Scripture. You must drink it in. You must live in it, delight in it, and apply it to your life. But secondly, dwelling has the idea of staying there, right? So if I go to a hotel, I check into the hotel, how many nights am I probably going to stay there? Usually just one night, right? And then in the morning at 10, 11 o'clock, um, as late as possible, I'm going to get up and I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to drive away. And I'm not coming back to that hotel probably ever again unless it's like my favorite hotel on a trip that I take all the time. Mr. Tillman, do you stay at the same hotel every time you go out to Greenville? Sometimes, yeah, okay. So in a way, maybe Mr. Tillman dwells at this hotel, okay. But you don't, you're not staying there. It's a temporary thing, right? For God's word to dwell in our lives, it must actually stay there. It needs to be continually in our hearts. It's, uh, we don't want it to be hopping from house to house, coming and going as, it's, as it pleases, but the word should find its permanent residence in your heart. So some people are kind of like spiritual roller coasters. Have you met anybody like this? That they have good days, they have really bad days. They're up and they're down, right? And it's because maybe they, they get on a spiritual high, they're hot, and, and then the next day they get on a spiritual low and they're, they're cold. And how often have we had young people go to camp and they make a camp decision? We, in fact, the term camp decision has become derogatory because of this idea where they go and they get excited about the Lord at camp. And then two weeks later, they're not doing a single thing that they talked about when they were at camp. You know, and some people are like that. And it's because the word of Christ has not come to stay, to permanently dwell in their heart. Their decision has been just a passing decision. And so it's, it's like we, we need to stoke up the fire and keep God's word dwelling in our hearts. Again, to quote Spurgeon, Oh, to have the word of Christ always dwelling inside of us, in memory never forgotten, in heart always loved, in the understanding really grasped, with all the powers and passions of the mind fully submitted to its control. And so the idea, memory, memorizing Bible verses. You know what? I've memorized so many Bible verses over my life. Um, I've completed every Awana book, every completed. And then they had those little cards that they have you, have you work through after you've completed it. And you work through all those as well. Well, I completed all those too. And then Pastor Carsey's would have us memorizing entire chapters of the Bible when we were in high school. And Pastor John did this too. 
how many of those memory verses do I still remember? You know, and I, and I think a lot of it is because of this lack of the word of Christ dwelling in me. I'm, I'm not continually going back and memorizing the word. That's just the first point that Spurgeon talks about there. So memory, never forgotten. In the heart, always loved, okay? So the word of Christ in our hearts, always loved, always something that we're passionate to pursue. Again, this is that roller coaster, right? You have a hot day, you're, you're excited about the Lord, and the word of Christ is passionate in your heart. But tomorrow, it dies out, it becomes cold. And then in our understanding, really grasped, okay? This is the idea of studying the scriptures and understanding them, coming to understand what do they mean and how do they apply to my life. We need to, we need to be allowing the word of God to have permanent residence in our heart and not just be like a guest who comes in one day and then leaves the next, okay? Also, in order for the word of Christ to dwell in our hearts, it has to have access to your whole life, okay? So if, if I walk into my house I ha and I own my house, I have access to every room within my house, okay? The only exception to that that I can think of is horror stories. You know, like there's this room that's locked up and nobody ever goes in there because something creepy is happening in there, okay? That, that's not owning your house, right? You're not dwelling in it properly because you don't have a clue what's in there. You're, you're just a guest in whatever monster's in that closet, okay? So, but we need, we need to have access to every aspect of our house to truly say, this is mine. When I come to my house, I can walk into Chloe's room, knock first, okay? So, but I can walk into Chloe's room because it's my house, right? I can go into the bathroom, in fact, the kids, they fight me about this because uh, the main bathroom, they say, is their bathroom, okay? And so I'm not allowed to use their bathroom. That's, that's kind of the idea. So, but, but it's my house. I own the entire thing, right? And the word of God needs to have access to every area of our life. There shouldn't be some portion of your life that you've sequestered and hidden off, that you've locked behind a closed door, that the word of God, it can't have access to this. If the word of God is truly dwelling in your life, it has access to every part of your life. And nothing is hidden from it. Nothing is locked away. And so can we really say that we own the house or that the word of God owns our lives when it doesn't have access to every part of our lives? It is not truly dwelling. Dwelling also has the idea of authority. Okay? If I'm dwelling in a house, this is my, my house, I have authority to make changes in my house, if I want to paint my walls green, I can paint my walls green, okay? I can make those, those changes. I was recently talking with Elijah, who has just uh, moved into a new apartment, and he wanted to put in a smart thermostat. But you know what? The rules say he can't make any modifications to his apartment. Because, does he own the apartment? No, he doesn't. He is just temporarily residing in that apartment, okay? But if you own your house, you're dwelling in your house, you have the authority to make those changes, to put in a smart thermostat, to get pink carpet if that's what you want and have doilies everywhere or whatever, you know. You can make any of these types of changes. I can move the furniture, I can change the colors of the wall, I can put a new roof on it. But if you come over to my house and start moving my furniture, I might have to fight you, okay? So, no. Um, visitors don't have authority to change things when they come over. Ultimately, does the word of God have authority to change things in your life? So just to recap here, the word of God, if it's truly dwelling in our lives, has to enter into your life. It also has to stay there, permanent resident, 
It also has to have access, but it also needs to have authority. Okay? It says, let the word of Christ dwell, but where is it to dwell? In you. In you. And I think this has an individual aspect to it, but it also has a corporate aspect to it. Okay? In, the word of Christ should be dwelling in Jeff. should be dwelling in Roy. should be dwelling in Melissa. should be dwelling in Cheyenne. In, in our lives, the word of Christ should be dwelling in us as individuals. But this is also true of our churches, right? There is, there is a sense in which this passage is dealing with the whole group of, of believers because he talks about teaching and admonishing one another. The word of Christ should be dwelling in our relationships, one with another within the church. And, and it, it'll manifest itself in, in these ways. So the word of God should be dwelling in our churches and that means it should take a central role in our worship within our churches. Some churches are big into worships, worship ser- services where they have singing and that's mostly what they have and then maybe 10 minutes of a devotional, right? A nice, cute little thought at the very end. And that's how they conduct church. You know, but the word of God should be central, should be the pinnacle of our worship. And not, not the singing, although the singing is important. The word of God has to have that primary position and authority within our churches. So as to let the word of Christ dwell in us, in us individually, in us corporately, but also it's to dwell in us richly or abundantly. This, goes, this points back to the idea that the word of Christ is to dwell in you, has access to every part of your life, okay? I remember one day I was working at Chick-fil-A, and uh, the manager's office was in the very back, and I was coming back through the kitchen to go back to the manager's office to do some paperwork, and all of a sudden I walk into the back hallway, and it's completely flooded with water. The water heater had sprung, sprung a leak or something, and all that water was gushing out, and it wouldn't stop, and we called the plumbers, and they took like an hour, and so another guy and I, we took squeegees, and we were constantly squeegeeing the water away from everything into the drains in, in the floor. And the water was flooding into, and it was overflowing where it was supposed to be, right? That's, that's basically the idea here. The word of Christ should be dwelling in us richly to the point where it is overflowing in our lives. And this is going to be important with the next section here. The word of God should be flowing out of us just like those water heater lines at Chick-fil-A. Now, the third thing here is that we are to be teaching and admonishing one another. So when the word of God is dwelling in us richly, it is overflowing in our lives, it is going to make its way out. It isn't just going to stay here. It's going to come out, and that's what we see in this text. But let's turn to Jeremiah 20, verse 7 through 13, as an illustration of this truth. Jeremiah chapter number 20. If you remember the story of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was called to preach to a people who would not listen, to a people who would not repent, right? And Jeremiah in verse number seven says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. Jeremiah felt betrayed by God. Basically, God was condemning him to a life of worthlessness in ministry, And the people were mocking him. They were holding him in derision every single day. And Jeremiah was becoming bitter over this. It says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. 
Verse number eight. For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. So Jeremiah, because of his discouragement, his bitterness, his despair, he felt God had betrayed him, okay? He says that God had deceived him. Because of that, Jeremiah was determined that he would not speak the word of the Lord. But the word of God was dwelling within him, and it says here that it burned was as a burning fire shut up in my bones. Okay, you take a, <clears throat> a hose and you turn it on full blast, but you kink it, okay? What's eventually gonna happen to that hose? It's what? It's gonna explode, okay, maybe. I, there's probably some other safety features built in that keep that from happening. But yes, eventually it's gonna explode, right? Because the pressure's gonna build, it's gonna burst, burst out, right? And this is what was happening to Jeremiah. The word of Christ was dwelling in him. God had given his word to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah decided, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to keep it all bottled up inside. And he says, it was as a fire burning within my bones. He could not stay silent. He could not stop. And so the word of God was within him, shut up as a fire within his bones. It says he was weary with forbearing, and he could not stay. Verse number 10, for I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side, Report, say they, and we will report it. All familiars watched for my halting, saying, peradventure he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and we shall take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, terrible one. Therefore my persecutors shall stumble, and they shall not prevail. They shall be greatly ashamed, for they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten." But, O Lord of hosts, that triest the righteous and seest the reins of the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them. For unto thee have I opened my cause. Sing unto the Lord, praise ye the Lord, for he hath delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. So when Jeremiah finally releases, he lets the word of God out. He declares his message. He ends by a word of singing at the very end. He says, sing unto the Lord. Praise ye the Lord, for he hath delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of evildoers. And this is actually a very appropriate parallel to our text. Let's turn back to Colossians chapter number 3. <clears throat> Colossians chapter number 3. <clears throat> when the word of God is dwelling in us and consuming us, it will break out. It will make its way out. And it does that, according to the text, in two ways. Okay? And this, this is the main point of the, the message tonight. It will break out in teaching and admonishing one another. In teaching and admonishing one another. Now, what is teaching? Teaching is holding a discourse with somebody to instruct them. Okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm dialoguing with you to teach you something. That is, that is the idea of teaching. And according to this text, the pastor isn't the only one who is supposed to be doing the teaching. Or the Sunday school teachers. This is something that applies to all of us as believers, that we are to be teachers. And the implication of this verse is that when the word of God is dwelling in our hearts, it will overflow into teaching other people. We will want to communicate what God has shown us to other believers in Christ. 
So one thing I've learned as a teacher is that teaching actually has a reciprocal effect okay, on the teacher. The more you teach, the better you learn the topic. Mr. Tillman, have you ever experienced that? Yeah, okay. You learn it so much better when you are teaching other people. And so it's a great opportunity. I think, David, you talked about Sunday school maybe doing biblical doctrines, which he's taking as a class. But him being able to turn around and teach that will help teach it to himself even greater, you know. And so the more you teach the the topic, the better you are at dealing with that topic. But not everybody is qualified to teach, right? One of the qualifications for a pastor is that he be apt to teach or able to teach, and you can't just, you can't teach the word, ultimately, this is the conclusion of this text, you can't teach the word if it has not been allowed to dwell in your hearts. This teaching is an outflow. It is a response to the word of God dwelling in your hearts. And th- this is logical, right? Do we want uh, um, Cheyenne coming up and teaching us how to do brain surgery? Probably not, right? Okay. Cheyenne, do you know anything about brain surgery? No, we don't want just anybody coming up and teaching things that they don't know, they don't have a grasp of. And so the word of Christ has to be dwelling in us for us to be able to teach properly. And so the word of God, if it's not allowed to dwell in us, we we aren't basically qualified to teach. And Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 12 says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Now, the longer you have been a Christian, the more qualified you should be, in theory, to teach. Because you have had more time for the word of God to dwell in your hearts. And in the the book of Hebrews, they had believers who had been walking with the Christians long enough that they ought to be teachers. They've been Christians long enough that they could have been teachers. But that was not the case. He says here that that they had need that somebody teach them the first principles, the basics, the ABCs of the Christian faith, because they were not mature believers like they should be. And he says that they needed to be fed with milk and not with strong meat. You, You can't give a baby a steak and say, here, chew on this for a while and expect them to be able to eat it, right? They can only handle milk, and that is natural for a baby. But if Jeff over here gets a baby bottle with milk and that's all he ever drinks for the rest of his life, would that be appropriate? No, it would be kind of strange, right? And and Paul picks up on this picture in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, verses 1 through 4, where he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, For heretofore you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Again, we expect a baby to drink milk. We expect a baby to need to have its diapers changed, to be taken care of in more detail. But a mature adult shouldn't need to be fed with a bottle. They shouldn't need somebody to change their diaper. Now, there, there are obvious exceptions to this when you get later on in age. We're not going there, okay? So, but the idea here is that a healthy, mature adult does not need to be bottle-fed. They, they, they can handle more than just milk. 
So because of that, mature Christians are those who are dwelling in God's word and are able to teach and do not need to be fed the milk of the word. So in our teaching, we should be seeking to be, we should be seeking to be qualified to teach by dwelling in God's word, because ultimately that's what will make us mature believers able to teach. So as, as believers, we are to teach, but it says here that we are to teach in all wisdom. Now, notice this, this phrase in our Bibles, it, it looks like it goes with the previous phrase, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, and then we have a semicolon here, but most people believe this modifies teaching and admonishing. So not only are we to teach because of the work the word of God has done in our lives, but we are to teach in all wisdom. In Colossians 1 verse 28 says, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. So they teach every man in what? In all wisdom. We are to use wisdom in the way that we are teaching. And so if we are going to teach others, we must do it in the wisdom that comes from God's word. So dwelling in, letting the word of Christ dwell in us is going to produce teaching as it outflows from us to other believers. But also it is going to produce admonishing. There is a difference between teaching and admonishing. Admonishing means to warn or to exhort. It's the same word from which we get our idea for neuthetic counseling. You may not know that term. Neuthetic counseling or biblical counseling, okay? It's also the same word found in Romans 15, verse 14, which says, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. So neuthetic counseling consists of lovingly confronting people out of a deep concern in order to help them make those changes that God requires. So there, within the debate about counseling, there are different spheres of, of where people fall on the counseling spectrum. But a lot of people who emphasize heavily on psychology, they will attack neuthetic counseling and say, oh, that's just dealing with behavior. But that's not how the word of God works. If you guys were in my, uh, mine and Pastor Carsey's VBS lessons about the battle for your mind, right? We dealt with behavior, but where was the source of that behavior? It was in the beliefs that we hold, the lies that we have believed in, right? The thought patterns that we have allowed into our lives. And so neuthetic counseling isn't just about behavior, but it's actually taking the word of God and applying it to the thoughts of the heart, and it comes, in fact, neuthetic comes from this word for the mind, okay? But the issue is a lot of psychologists will attack neuthetic counseling because they will say that, um, because they really ultimately it comes down to most of them do not believe that the Bible has the answers for life and for our faith and practice. And so they, they will reject it generally out, outright. But central to neuthetic counseling is the idea that scripture is sufficient for our faith and for our life. Let's turn to 2 Peter verse 1 through 4. 2 Peter 1 verse 1 through 4. <clears throat> Second Peter 1 verses 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things 
that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. So as Christians, we have been given all things that pertain, everything that we need for life and for godliness. Okay, We have been given everything that we need in those areas, how to live our lives and how to live a holy life through, through God and through his word. <clears throat> and then it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It is beneficial for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good, good works. So scripture is profitable to teach us what is true, how to, how to make things right, how to keep things right, how to, um, how to, what, and, what, and what is wrong in our lives. And then Joshua 1 verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So if we want to have prosperous, good success, we want to live a life that is, that is right before the Lord, we have to take the word, of, we have to be talking about the word of God, we have to be meditating on the word, and we have to be doing the word of God. And then Paul in Colossians chapter number two, back in our, our textbook here, Colossians chapter number two, verse number eight, he warns the Colossians, and he says, beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So the word of God and, and God's spirit has given us everything that we need to live life and to live a godly life. Okay? That is foundational to this idea of counseling, which is this word for admonish here. When we're talking about admonishing, we're talking about counseling one another to warn or to exhort biblically. Now, some clarifications here, just so I'm clear, okay? This isn't to say that if you have something physically wrong with you, you shouldn't go see a doctor. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Um, I'm not gonna read a Bible verse over you and it's miraculously going to heal you of cancer. Okay? I know people who believe that, and so they'll pray Bible verses over people, and that, but that's not what scripture says, okay? But when we're dealing with the soul, the spirit, and the mind, God's Holy Spirit working through the word of God is sufficient in matters dealing with faith and life. This also isn't to say that nothing else should have an input in your beliefs or the way that you live your lives, okay? But scripture should regulate those influences. Think about this as an example, Bible devotionals. They can be really, really helpful, but are they the, are they the word of God? They may contain parts of it, but are they the word of God? No, they're not. So should we just reject them, throw out the window, scripture's all that I need in my life? No, that's, that's not what the sufficiency of Scripture means. They can have an influence, but they need to be consistent with what the Bible says. They're helpful, and they can be beneficial. And hopefully, they will have Scripture within them. So it's, that would be an extreme to say that only Scripture can have an influence in your life. But also, thirdly, this isn't to say that there might not be other physical means necessary to help you live out what Scripture teaches. So people are composed of three pieces, body, soul, and spirit. You might have a spiritual problem with, let's say, pornography, right? But your body is involved in that spiritual struggle as well. 
And so, you, and so the body can be, you can take measures to help out with those types of things, such as filtering your devices or avoiding certain circumstances where you know you are going to be tempted in a greater way. And this goes back to, again, Paul's teaching that we are to mortify, therefore, our members, our sinful inclinations that we experience physically within us. So both this text and the one in Romans 15, verse 14, imply that believers should be counseling each other from the word of God. But again, this teaching and this admonishing comes from a heart that has been dwelling in the word of God. Okay? I don't expect a carnal Christian to come up and tell a spiritual Christian how they should live their faith. That carnal Christian hasn't been dwelling in the word of God. And, and it doesn't make sense. And so we need to, and when we talk about admonishing, there, this is a little bit more firm than teaching. When I'm teaching you, I'm saying, hey, this is the truth. You, you need to, X plus three equals seven, so X equals four, right? I'm teaching you the truth of something. I'm going to be a little bit gentler in the way that I approach it, hopefully, okay? But if I'm admonishing you, it's a little bit more firm. It's a little bit more passionate. It's a little bit more emotional even, right? Because I am warning you. If you're about to drive off a cliff, I'm saying, hey, don't do that, because there's destruction at the other end. You're going to die, right? Or if you're running a race and I come and encourage you and I say, hey, keep going, right? There's more passion to that because I'm trying to motivate you to a certain course of action. And admonishing involves that emotional layer to it because I'm warning you about a wrong course of action. But we need to make a distinction about how we deal with certain circumstances. Let's turn to Jude chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Jude chapter 1. <clears throat> Go to Revelations, turn back a page, right? <laughs> so, Jude chapter 1. And I heard these verses growing up a lot of times talking about how we need to make a difference in other people's lives, okay? I don't think that's what these verses are saying. Verse 22 says, And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. So a lot of people have latched onto that phrase, making a difference. And they said, we are to make a difference in other people's lives by having compassion on them, right? But that idea of making a difference actually is making a distinction. Uh, Jude is talking about some people, you have compassion on them, okay? And, and it changes their lives. But others... You save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by, <clears throat> by the flesh. And so we are to make a distinction in how we deal with certain situations. So sometimes I'm going to warn you, okay? Other times I need to encourage you. Those are two different things. Warning is a little bit more severe. It's a little, there's more caution. There's danger at the end, right? Encouragement is saying, hey, let's keep going this direction. Two different things, okay? And so we need to make a distinction in our admonishing and how we deal with different people in different circumstances. So as believers who have allowed the word of God to dwell in our hearts, that word should overflow into teaching and into counseling one another, to warning, to exhorting one another, encouraging them. But that warning, according to our text, let's turn back to Colossians chapter number three. Colossians chapter number three. In verse 16, 
that teaching and that admonishing one another can take the form of singing. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Just like in the story of Jeremiah, when the word of God is burning in our bones and dwelling in us, singing is a natural response. It will, it will come forth out of our hearts. In fact, according to this text, our teaching and our admonishing takes the form of singing. So there's a couple points you could derive from this. First of all, there is a connection between our singing and our teaching. The singing, the worship services of the song should be biblical. Biblical God-honoring music will have biblical truth and depth to it because we recognize that our music teaches. Onward Christian Soldiers, we sang that song today. What was that song intended to teach? It's intended to teach us that we are marching forward as an army who have to fight militantly for God on his behalf. So we are to keep on moving forward, onward Christian soldiers. And so this verse also serves to show us that Christian musicians should be experts in God's word, not novices. They should be more like theologians. Most of your Christian musicians today don't even, don't even know how, half of the, I'm, hardly any Bible verses. They're very ignorant of what the scripture teaches. And in, in many Bible colleges, in fact, your music majors aren't required to study much of the Bible. They just get the bare minimums. It should be the other way around. Our, the people who write our music should be the experts in theology. In fact, all of our hymns, you think of Wesley, you think of Newton, you think of uh, Isaac Watts, you think of all these men. They were expert theologians. They knew God's word. And God's word was dwelling in them, was burning with inside them, to where it outflowed into them writing scripture songs and hymns and things that we sing today. And so genuine worship for God should come from a heart that has been dwelling in God's word. But this verse also shows that there is a connection between how filled we are with the word of God and our worship. There's, 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 there is a connection between those things. Have you been to a church where you walk in and everybody sounds dead and dry and it's like a funeral parlor when you walked into the church? There are churches like that, right? Okay. And, and we, honestly, we shouldn't be like that. When the wor God's word is dwelling in our hearts, our singing should burst forth from a heart that has been filled with God's word, a genuine heart singing to God. So if the word of God is not in our hearts, ultimately... Can we really sing from our hearts genuinely? Can we, or is it really a genuine worship of God if we don't have the word of God dwelling within our hearts? But then this, this singing takes three forms. It takes the form of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Luke has taught more on this, so I'm not really going to go into a lot of detail. But psalms are basically the, the psalms, okay, or songs that are from scripture. And I was thinking through our hymn book, thinking, okay, what psalms do we have in our hymn book? We don't have a Psalter, okay? And uh, I think the only one that came to my mind was As the Deer, okay? I don't know why, but As the Deer and maybe uh, Seek Ye First, okay? Those are, those are scripture songs, right? Um, those are some good examples of the idea of a psalm. Hymns are songs of praise to God. We think of holy, holy, holy. Spiritual songs are more songs of testimony, such as It Is Well With My Soul. And these are the songs that are going to burst from our heart as we are allowing God's word to dwell within us. But then it says, singing with grace in your hearts. Grace is a specific grace here. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit enabling us 
within our lives. And so this kind of ties in with our parallel text in Ephesians chapter 5, which says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. So God's Spirit gives us the grace that we need to sing from our hearts to praise God in these psalms and these hymns and these spiritual songs. So the tie here is between a genuine work of the Holy Spirit in your hearts and lifting up your voice to sing. Tying it all together, though, for this point, there is a connection between the knowledge of God's word and how much it dwells in you and the genuineness of our worship. So as we dwell in God's word and are filled with his spirit, we should be seeking to teach and to counsel one another from God's word. This is part of the work of edifying the body of Christ. How else do you grow? Do you build up the church? You have to open your mouth and you have to talk. You have to be involved in people's lives. You have to teach. You have to admonish. You have to exhort. You have to warn people if you're really going to see true biblical growth in in the body and in other believers within the church. So this is part of the work of edifying the body of Christ, but it's also part of practicing the community of the church. It's what I owe to you. Okay? I should, and, and there's a responsibility here, right? If I owe you teaching and admonishing, that's something I ought to give you as a believer. I'm, that's something I'm supposed to do to other believers. Then the responsibility here is that I have to have the word of God dwelling in my heart because I can't do it if I don't have that word of Christ, the word of Christ dwelling richly in my heart so that it will overflow from my life, out my lips, and hopefully into your life as I teach and I admonish you from the word of God. Let's go ahead and bow our heads, close our eyes, and we'll stand and we'll have a time of invitation today. Are you allowing God's word to dwell in your hearts? Until you get to that point where you are, we can't fulfill our obligations to other believers in Christ to teach them and to admonish them from the word of God. Altar's always open if you want to come forward and make anything right with the Lord or talk to the Lord about anything. Um, But Carrie, if you don't mind playing the piano.